This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. There was a young Orthodox family that had moved from Europe to the United States to escape oppression and was living in New York City in the early 1920s, when the husband, just a year after the birth of their son Moshe in 1921, passed away, leaving his wife Basia to take care of their child. And it's not easy for anyone to lose a spouse or a parent, but in 1921, it was really not easy. But she did what she could. She cleaned houses, took any odd jobs she could, cooking, babysitting, whatever she could find, and somehow every week she made just enough money to get by. But then her son Moshe became sick, and no matter what the family doctor tried, nothing was helping. Realizing that he was at his medical limit, he sent Basia and her son Moshe to the local hospital to be tested and see if they could figure out what was going on. And she didn't have much savings, but she took whatever she had and went to the hospital. And after doing a few tests, she was given the name of a specialist. But she was warned that it would cost a lot of money. It didn't take time for her to get his phone number and call his office. And when the doctor got on the phone, she said to him, Listen, my son is very sick, and the hospital tells me you can help him. He's too sick to come to you. You'll need to come to us. The doctor said, Okay, no problem. I'll come to you, but my fee is very high. And the mother said, Money is no problem. Come here and take care of my son. When the great doctor arrived at her rundown apartment building, He started doubting if she would be able to pay his fee. And then when he knocked on the door and walked into the apartment, he saw that they were living in abject poverty. His first thought was simply to turn around and walk away because his condition was that she pay a high fee, especially for a house visit. But he figured he's already there. He'll check out the boy. He went to the sink and washed his hands. Examines the boy and then turns to the mother and says, I know exactly what your son has. It's a very rare disease. And I also know the cure for the disease and where you can get the treatment. You're going to have to go about three miles from here. And there's a large drugstore. They're the only ones that make this medicine. But I have to warn you, it's very expensive. It's going to cost you a few thousand dollars. I can see that you don't have any money. So I'll be kind to you and not ask for any payment for my services but I don't know what you're going to do when you get to the pharmacy. They're not going to give you the medicine for free, that's for sure. And Basia, grateful to the doctor, thanked him and said, I'm not worried about the money. Hashem can provide anything. I need to take care of my son. And so the doctor packed up his instruments, wrote out a prescription. And as soon as he left, she ran outside and hailed a taxi to the pharmacy. As soon as she got to this large pharmacy, she went straight to the counter and handed the prescription to the pharmacist. He looks at it, looks back at this woman, clearly doesn't have very much money, and then looks back at the prescription several times, going back and forth between the prescription and this poor woman, and then he raises his eyebrow, and he says to her, this is going to take a while, and it's going to cost you $3,000. Now let me tell you, friends, $3,000 today is a lot of money, but in 1921, you're talking about the equivalent of approximately $50,000 today. Batya stands up straight, she looks at the pharmacist, 
And she says, I have to admit, I don't have $3,000. However, I'm willing to work to pay off the bill. No matter how long it takes, I will clean the drugstore every night and I won't finish until I've paid off my debt. And I'm willing to write it down and sign an agreement. Please, I have to save my son's life. And the pharmacist, he gave a little smile and he said to her, actually, the cleaning woman just quit and we're going to need somebody to clean the pharmacy every night. So he takes out a pen and paper. He starts making a calculation. If she came for two hours every night, it would take two years to pay off the debt. And she agrees. The pharmacist writes out a paper, an agreement. Basia signs it, committing herself to two years of work in exchange for the medication that would heal her son. It took the pharmacist an hour to prepare the medication, explained to her how to use it, and gave her several bottles. She put it in her purse and said, I'll be back tomorrow night to start cleaning. She was about to hire a taxi to take her back, but she realized she had spent everything she had to take the taxi to the pharmacy. And so she put the bottles in her purse and held it tight to her chest and started walking the three miles home. She walked as quickly as she could, and even though it was cold outside, she was sweating from the exertion and the anxiety, and it took her over an hour to walk home. And by the time she was getting close to the house, it was dark at night, it was cold, and there was no one around. She covered her purse with her coat, hoping that no one would pay attention to her, started saying to Hillem and looking down at the pavement, Walking as fast as possible, not even looking up, but it didn't help. Suddenly, someone grabbed her by the shoulder, pushed her against a wall, and said, What are you hiding in that coat there? She looks up to see this huge man who's trying to pull the purse out of her coat. It's freezing. It's dark. There's no one around. And she says, Please, I don't have any money. All I have is this medicine for my son. He's dying. He's sick. You don't know what I had to go through to get this medication. Please leave me alone. But the hoodlum didn't care. He pulls out the medicine bottle and he says, oh, medicine, huh? You call this medicine? Maybe it's something good. Maybe you've got some whiskey or some drugs in here. Something I can take. And he unscrews the top of the medicine bottle. Takes a deep whiff of the medication. He's hoping to feel something. And then he says, ugh, this is disgusting. What is this? It smells like vomit. He opens up another bottle. Smells it. He says, this is terrible. What is this? He pushes Basia against the wall, slaps her, knocks her down on the pavement, and pours the medicine all over her. He spits at her, throws the bottles on the ground, and runs away. And Batya, she felt like she just wanted to cry. She knew that her son, Moshe, would only live if she could get this medication for him. And so, without hesitating, she stands up, picks up the broken bottles, puts them in her purse, covers herself up with the coat, and starts walking back as fast as possible to the pharmacy. Now, she was injured, and she was hurting, and it wasn't easy for her to walk. And the whole time she sang Hashem, please, let the pharmacy be open. I have to save my son, Moshe. And an hour later, she arrived. And Baruch Hashem, thank God, the pharmacy was still open. She walks inside. And the pharmacist who was in the back room sees her. He sees that her face is swollen, that she'd been beaten up. He says, what happened to you? And what's that terrible smell? She said, please, please. He said, sit down. Let me get you some water. Ugh, what's that disgusting smell? She didn't want to drink water. And she didn't want to sit. She said to him, listen, I didn't have any money for a taxi. So I walked home. 
and I was holding my purse close to me because I'm carrying a life-saving medication for my son. And some hoodlum saw me and he thought that I was carrying drugs or alcohol or something. And he beat me up and he took the medication and he smelled it and he poured it all over me. Now I don't have the medication to save my son. Please bring out the contract. I will clean your pharmacy for another two years. I will commit to four years every night to come here and clean your pharmacy. I have to have that medication to save my son. I have to have it. The pharmacist looks at her and his face is turned white. He said, tell me, where's the smell on your coat from? What is that stain all over your coat? Is that the medication? She said, yes, yes. I know it smells bad, but I have to save my son, please. It's not important what happened to me. She shows him the broken bottle and she says, please give me more medication to save my son. And the pharmacist says, hang on a second. Give me the bottle. He looks at it. He reads the label and he puts his hand on his face. And Basia could see was about to faint. And the pharmacist says, I don't understand. This is the bottle you got from me? I gave you this? She said, yeah, of course. I got it from you and I walked straight home. He looks again at the bottle and he said, I gave this to you. I can't believe it. Now his eyes are filled with tears. He looked over at Basia and he said, I just can't believe it. I don't believe it. And Basia says, can you please get a hold of yourself? Bring the paper. I'm willing to commit to another two years. Just I have to get home and give this to my son. And the pharmacist says, listen, I made a mistake. I gave you the wrong medication. I made a terrible mistake. If your son had taken what I had given you, he would have died. Do you understand? I would have killed him. He would have died. And I would be in prison. And my business would be gone. And I would have destroyed my family and murdered an innocent child. I don't understand. Do you realize your being robbed is a miracle? He says, listen, Basia, you can't tell anyone about this. No one. You tell someone about this, I'll lose my license. I'll lose my whole livelihood. She said, okay, I won't tell anyone. But please, I need more medication. He said, listen, I'm going to give you the right medication. I'm going to give it to you for free. Just wait here. He went into the back room. And a few minutes later, he comes back with several bottles that look just like the first ones. And he said, no charge. You don't owe me anything. He said, and that's not it. He went and took the contract that she had signed and ripped it up. And then he went into his wallet and gave her a hundred dollar bill. He said to her, this time you take a taxi home. You don't walk. And whatever's left, you spend it on your son. He gave her some other things to heal the wounds that she had, some gauze and some creams. He put it in a bag. He said, here, this will help you with the swelling in your face. Please promise me, Basia, you're not going to tell anyone. In about 10 years, I'm going to retire. Don't tell anyone until then. You got it? If ever you need money, you need a favor, you need anything, you come to me. Just don't tell anyone what happened. At first, she didn't want to take the $100, but he insisted. And then he walked her outside, hailed a taxi for her, and the pharmacist paid in advance for the trip. And when Basia got home, she gave the medicine to her son, and he healed. And when he grew up, he became a great rabbi. And his name was Rabbi Moshe Shearer, who eventually became the chairman of the Agudat Yisrael branch in the United States, which represented Orthodox Jews all throughout the United States. And eventually, Rabbi Shearer passed away in 1988. And every year, on his holy mother's yard site, he would tell this story about the Mesirut Nefesh, the self-sacrifice that his mother had for saving his life. And as I'm sure you know, my sweetest friends, every mother would do whatever she could for her own children. 
But Basia, she had real emuna. She had real faith in Hashem. Every time she needed money, she wasn't concerned where it would come from because she knew that Hashem could provide anything. And you see how the story worked out? Not only did she get everything she needed, she got even more. She got to save the pharmacist. She got to save her son. And she got to be the mother that Hashem wanted her to be. Another short story for you. Actually, I'm going to share two short stories with you about the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, because it's always good to share stories about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The first one is actually from a discussion that we were having today in my house. Someone was asking about giving tzedakah, of giving charity, and whether it was right to put your name on a building or a book or something else. Was that coming from a place of pride? Is that allowed? And the answer I gave was from a story that I heard about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Someone once came to the Rebbe and wanted to give a million dollars anonymously. He said, Rebbe, I'm a chassid. I'm a chabad chassid. The last thing I want is for my ego to be fed by putting my family's name on a building. And the Rebbe said to him that he had to put his name on the building and that he could give $100,000 in his name and $900,000 anonymously. And when the chassid said to the Rebbe, he didn't understand. The Rebbe said, if you don't put your name in the building, and your friends don't know that you gave money, then they won't want to give money. But if they see that you gave money, then they'll also give money. So people need to know that you donated and you gave. And should you want to give more money anonymously, that's fine. But everybody should know that you gave something. And the second story is about a non-religious girl that came to Yechidis, a private audience with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And she's sitting there speaking with the Rebbe arguing that no one has the right to tell her what to do with anything in the world, and especially on how to be a Jew. She should be able to decide how she's Jewish, and if she's Jewish, no one should be telling her what to do. So the Rebbe says to her, why did you come here? And she said, I didn't have a choice. Somebody brought me here and said I have to speak to you. So I'm telling you, Rebbe, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I want to make my own decisions for myself, especially in the realm of religion. And my rights as a woman? And the Rebbe said, But didn't you just say that somebody brought you here? She said, Yeah, yeah, I was forced to come here. And the Rebbe said, But didn't you say that one shouldn't follow others' directives? And the girl thought for a second. And she turned to the Rebbe and she said, Okay, next topic. 
I want to travel to India and get to know the gurus and go to an ashram. I want to know how other people worship gods and find spirituality in places outside of Judaism. And the Rebbe said, okay, do you have any other questions? She said, yes, I want to go to university and get a degree. So the Rebbe said to her, if you listen to my advice, stay here. In India, you'll learn about other people's lifestyles. But here in Crown Heights, you'll learn about your own. And apparently being in the presence of a great tzaddik like the Rebbe had its impact on her. She decided not to travel to India, and she decided to stay in New York and learn more about what it is to be a Jew. And eventually she got married and had a warm Hasidic family. And so sometimes, my sweetest friends, our Yetzirah, our evil inclination, gets the best of us. It knows us better than anyone. And sometimes we need the advice of a Rebbe to bring us back to our senses. We we merit to see it any and every time we need it, and to continue to be inspired by the stories of great mothers and great tzaddikim. Thank you for listening, my sweetest friends, as always. Please keep on sharing, telling your friends about it, sending me comments. And thank you, as always, to all the supporters. And if you would like to become a supporter, please just go to my website, HasidicStory.com, H-A-S-I-D-I-C, Story.com, and you can become a supporter there. So thank you again for listening, and I look forward to our next story next week. Zai gesund, my sweetest friends. Take care.